I read recently of a married couple by the name of Ralph and Jane who had been busily raising their children. And um, about the time that they had finally launched the kids and they were out on their way, Jane began to turn her sights towards finally pursuing those particular interests which she had uh, purposely sidelined while she was raising the children and helping her husband really get going in his career. At just about that particular time, her horrible news came in that a terrible tragedy had taken place. Ralph's brother and his wife had been killed in a car accident. And Ralph turned to Jane at this moment and begged her, can we please take my brother's children in? Jane thought for a moment. She knew it was the right thing to do. She sighed, knowing what she would now have to give up all over again. But she set herself to the task. And for the next years, she continued to raise these children now and help them get off on their way. And this was a little more challenging, this go-round, of course, because they were not her own blood children. All the while, Ralph was pursuing the higher and higher rungs of the corporate ladder. He was away a great deal of the time on business, and Jane was investing at home. And then one day, Ralph came to Jane and explained to her, that he'd fallen in love with his secretary, Sue, and he was leaving her. He was going away, and that he did. He uh, took off from the house. He uh, moved in with Sue, and before long, the, uh, the two of them were getting married, and then Ralph and Sue were going off, and they found a church, and the church, who didn't know any of the history, of course, uh, blessed this new thing God was doing in their lives and, and welcomed the couple, and Ralph went through a wonderful religious resurgence in his life, and he was moved one day to come back to his wife, Jane, and he said to her, Jane, can you forgive me? And Jane said, you can go to H-E double hockey sticks. (laughs) Do you understand why she said that? Do you get why it would have been very difficult for her to even imagine letting go of the one power she still had left, the strength of her hate, her contempt and scorn for this man and what he'd done. Do you understand why she felt that to forgive him would be to deny her dignity, her self-esteem, her self-respect? Why should she in any way appear to be excusing or condoning or even redeeming the choices this man had made. Why in the world would she choose to relieve in any way the burden of his guilt? You can understand this, I imagine, for yourself. In greater or lesser measure, you know what it is to sit in the place of painful hurt. You know what it's like when somebody that you trusted, that you counted on, did something real that wounded you and wronged you in a very, very serious way. 
you know how in those particular moments, in spite of all that we read in the Bible and all that we're taught in church, it is so very, very hard to forgive. So why, why would you do it? Why might you even desire to move from that place of resentment or bitterness or righteous indignation in which it is natural to sit, in which many people may, even here today, be stuck right now towards somebody? Why would you even want to move from that place? Before we start exploring next week the particulars of the how of forgiveness I just want to invite you to think with me today about the why of it. What would actually motivate you to pursue the how? In view of all of the awful things that people do in this life to other people, why not just hold on to all of the delicious scorn and contempt that we feel? Why not just seek punishment, some kind of retributive justice towards this person who has wronged you? In short, why Forgive at all? It's a fair question. It is a question a lot of people ask. Well, this morning I want to try to answer it. It's not going to be an exhaustive answer, it's not going to solve the complexities. It's only the beginning to the further explorations we're going to make on this subject. So when you come up in line after church today and you have a long list of questions I didn't answer, I feel the pain. This is a complicated subject. That's why we made it a series. Keep coming back. We're biting off a little bit more, a little bit more each time. But I want to think with you today about four specific motivations for forgiveness the, the, the why of forgiveness that all spring out of this amazing passage uh, from the writings of the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4. In the first place, you might just get motivated to start releasing some of those venomous feelings you naturally feel towards those who have hurt you. You might even actually begin to desire to start moving toward forgiving people of their sins for this simple reason. Because the Lord forgave you. And for Christians, it all starts here. Before we ever go into the Dr. Phil motivations for addressing this issue, it starts with our understanding that the Lord has forgiven us. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Get rid of, as in let go of, as in push away from you, all bitterness rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment with me, if you would. If you're anything like me, then you have a tendency in times of crisis and conflict with other people to simplify things. You reduce the complexity of the encounter to some fairly well-defined roles. 
one of the roles is occupied by the person who did the wrong to you. They are the wrongdoer. They are the guilty ones. They are the ones deserving of punishment, who need justice, who need to be held to account. These are the individuals who ultimately need to beg for forgiveness. They're the criminals who must say, I am sorry. And then there's our part. We are the victims. We are the ones who need to find it in ourselves to somehow go on, to maybe show a little bit of grace if we're followers of Jesus. And there's truth to this storyline. There's validity to this storyline because somebody has actually failed us. And we have truly been injured. But is it really as simple as it sometimes in our minds is portrayed? We never feel quite so blameless as when we have just been battered by somebody. And we never feel so clear about our being in the right as when somebody has done wrong to us. But as Lewis Smedes writes, being the injured party doesn't necessarily mean that we are the all-innocent party. Sometimes, of course, we may be. A child who's been abused, a person who has been taken advantage of in a particularly heinous way is largely innocent in the exchange. But there are other times when it is not as simple as this. Sometimes we bring our own injury upon us. It doesn't excuse the behavior of the other person, but we've played some part in what transpires. Get taken advantage advantage of, perhaps, because we have been too accommodating. We've left ourselves too wide open, hoping, hoping to show how available we were. We got into a terrible business deal, perhaps, because we failed to do the active diligence that was needed. We contribute to our spouse's harshness or infidelity or the uh, bad behavior of the people in our workplace because we failed to address them in the way for which they hungered or we hurt them in ways that we just do not yet see. Alexander Solzhenitsyn suffered for many years, as some will know, as a prisoner in the prison camps of the former Soviet Union in the Gulag Archipelago. If ever there was a person that you would say was innocent of the crime, simply speaking his heart, simply telling the truth about what was going on in his culture, Solzhenitsyn looks to be the fully innocent one being oppressed by wrong. And Yet the years of languishing in those work camps, the extensive time of solitude and introspection and reflection upon the scriptures led Solzhenitsyn to a deep place of humble self-awareness. And this is what he wrote. If only there were vile people committing evil deeds, and if only it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, wrote Solzhenitsyn. During the life of anybody's heart, this lifeline keeps changing place. 
Sometimes it's squeezed one way by exorbitant or exuberant evil, and sometimes it shifts just enough to allow space for good to flourish. One and the same human being, me and my guard, he was saying here, is at various ages, under various circumstances, a totally different human being. At times, he's close to being a devil. At times, close to sainthood. Theologian Miroslav Volf follows on and says, imagine what would happen if each and every one of us were punished for every transgression we committed. Imagine that. If every sarcastic remark, every unkind thought, every intentionally misleading comment, every failure of will to address wrong, to meet need, which we had the capacity to do something about it, what if we were held accountable required to pay the price for each and all of this. This, in part, is why Jesus reserved his harshest critique, his toughest words, for sinners that were hard on other sinners unduly, that were unwilling to seek Forgiveness for other sinners. From the perspective of God, who had given so much grace to people, the crimes and the misdemeanors of the allegedly innocent and the allegedly guilty, or the truly guilty in both cases, these crimes and misdemeanors were not so different from one another in the eyes of God. And God cannot bear the incongruity and the injustice of this. Jesus actually dares us to wonder in in, in some of his teaching of what it would be like if we actually had measured out to us by God grace with the same size spoon that we use towards others. The bottom line is I think for us, is that if it never occurs to us to forgive the person who has wronged us, if we don't ever even try to let go of the bitter memory or or pray for the power beyond ourselves to heal the broken relationship, if this never really is an impulse within our souls then we may be as insensible as that man we studied in the parable of the unmerciful servant last week, the one who has been forgiven such colossal debts and yet somehow cannot manage to forgive a debt this size. As Christians, we are motivated to pursue forgiveness because we understand at least something of what God in Christ has forgiven us. There is, however, a second motivation to forgive that Paul unpacks for us. Even when others have hurt us very, very badly, 
and especially if we regard ourselves as Christians, this second motivation is enormously powerful. How many of you regard yourself as Christians? If this is true, then your ambition in life, your calling in life, is to become like Jesus. It's not to become just a slightly nicer person. It's not to be slightly better in terms of their treatment and handling of conflict than the other people on the curve. If you're a follower of Jesus, then your ambition, your calling from God is to become like Jesus. St. Paul puts it this way in our text. Surely you heard of him. (laughs) Surely you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying, surely you know all the stories of the ways that Jesus handled people. You know the, the radical forgiveness and grace that he showed to people. Surely you heard of him and you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. To put off that old, harsh, hard-hearted self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. You were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God, like Jesus in true righteousness and holiness. John Ortberg is famously quoted as saying once upon a time, nobody ever became like Jesus because they thought they should. Nobody ever became like Jesus because they thought, I ought to. You have to want it. (laughs) You have to desire it. You have to want to get to the end of your days. And have people look at you and know this man, this woman loved something like Jesus. Reminded me of Jesus. And so you have to decide for yourself before you even come at the subject of forgiveness, do you want it? Do you want to be like him? Do you want that old self that keeps the score? That keeps nursing, brooding those deceitful desires for revenge and retribution? Is that what you want to be remembered by others? Is that what you want to bring before God in heaven one day? Or do you want to be made new in the attitude of your mind, says Paul? Do you want to have your thoughts realigned, your memories repurposed, your will redirected? Do you want this? Do you want to put on the new self created to be like God? Each time that you and I move in grace towards somebody who does not deserve it, maybe any more than we do, each time we move in grace like this, we become one more step like Jesus. Therefore, as God's Chosen people, writes Paul, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves this way every day. 
Put it on. Before you get out in bed in the morning, Lord, help me put it on. Help me put on compassion today and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Help me to bear with everybody I meet and forgive whatever grievances I may have against the other. Lord, help me to forgive as you forgave me. We are motivated to forgive because he forgave us. Because it makes us more like Jesus. But there's a third reason, I think. The third reason to pursue forgiveness is because it helps your heart. It really helps your heart. Listen to what Paul says about this. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. That's biblical code for don't live like everybody else in the world with regard to these things. Don't live like that. Don't do it in the futility of thinking that's popular in our age. For they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due, and this is important, to the hardening of their hearts. Hardened towards God, hardened towards people. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual continual lust for more. Let me put it a little differently, but it's the same idea. Living with the spirit of unforgiveness is like smoking cigarettes in the hopes of killing the person you hate. And it might damage them. The secondhand fumes of hate and resentment and bitterness and scorn and all the stuff that slips out, it might sort of (coughs) mess them up in some way. But make no mistake about whose heart is really in danger. It only leads to the further darkening of your own understanding. It only leads to the further hardening of your own heart. It only leads to the further desensitizing of yourself to all the parts of life and people and God that are still sweet and good and obtainable. To live and just to nurse the hurt and the rage and the bitterness is futile thinking. It is an act of ignorance because when we suck on sin when we suck again and again on the pain that it causes us, we're killing ourselves. The skeleton at the feast of our wrath is us. Again, Lou Smeeds writes, go ahead. And just follow this instruction now. Go ahead. Recall the pain of being wronged. Recall the hurt of being stung, cheated, demeaned. Doesn't the memory of it 
fuel the fire of fury again? Doesn't it make it hurt again? Do you like this feeling? Do you cherish it? You have become a prisoner of your past pain, writes Smeeds. You are locked into a torture chamber of your own making. Do you want your private world to stand still at that wretched incident in your irreversible history, or are you ready to find a better way? The only way to heal the pain that will not heal itself, writes Smeeds, is to forgive the person who hurt you, or at least be motivated to try and move in that direction. Forgiving stops the reruns of pain. When you release the wrongdoer from the wrong, you cut a malignant tumor out of your inner life. You set a prisoner free, and you find out that the prisoner was you. It was you. Why do we forgive? Because the Lord forgave us. Because it helps us become a bit more like Jesus. Because it helps our heart. And then finally in Ephesians 4 verses 25 and following, Paul gives us one more motivation to pursue forgiveness in spite of all of the reasons not to bother. Paul paints a picture of a world in which people are relating falsely to each other. They're damaging each other. They're hurting each other. Nobody's dealing with it. Nobody's facing the facts or, or telling the truth until somebody comes along who speaks truthfully to his neighbor. Paul pictures a world in which anger is allowed to just keep piling up like another layer of snow packed down underfoot, turning into ice, and it's just this way, hearts growing colder, until someone comes along and says, I'm not allowing the devil to keep skating on this stuff anymore. I'm going to address this need before the sun goes down. Paul pictures a planet where there is this endless cycle of stealing, of taking, of hurting, of drawing from each other and then verbally attacking other people because nothing's going to stop that until someone comes along who decides to do only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. In short, Paul foresees the great day of redemption the great day of redemption when God will fully and finally intervene in the cycle of hate and heartache to make all things new. Here's the message. Here's the takeaway for you and for me. Somebody has to start the new pattern. Somebody has to initiate the new dance. Someone has to break the vicious cycle by doing the unimaginable thing. Somebody has to at least try to overcome evil with good or the future ain't bright. Martin Luther King Jr. said... An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is a great approach as long as you don't mind a world that is ultimately 
completely toothless and blind. Right? Why? Why forgive? The answer is because in some small but very important way, it improves our world until Christ fully and finally can redeem it. It takes back one relationship. It takes back one corner unto the kingdom of God that is otherwise the possession of the dark side. As Brian Zond writes, if the only way of responding to the evil of injustice is retaliation and revenge, then we conspire with the powers of darkness to keep the world an ugly place. But grace is God's idea of how the world can be made new. I don't know about Jane or Ralph, or Sue. I don't know whether forgiveness will ever overtake that relationship, that set of relationships. I don't know. But what about you? What about the web of relationships in your life? Can you ever forgive that person who may have wounded and wronged you and may even now be injuring you? And more to the point, why, why would you ever choose that very hard but gracious path? I hope you see it a little more clearly today. Before we go on to the how next week, I hope you see a little more clearly why. It is because every time we move even a little bit, even imperfectly, in the direction of extending grace to one who has hurt us, we improve the world. We heal some portion of our heart. We become a little bit more like Jesus. And we show gratitude. We show proper appreciation for the one who in Christ has forgiven such a great debt, unimaginable debt in you and me. Amen.